Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook and not Parlor anymore. <laughs> If you haven't given us a five-star review, pause your recording and give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Kirk. Did we get any new reviews? Have you checked? Well, I mean, I mean you, don't need you, ask. To, you don't need to no, check but I can't. But I can check. Okay. Uh, well, while you're doing that, I'll I'll uh, I'll give you my update. Update away, sir. Now. Okay. Uh, in our house, we have gotten into board games. Are you familiar with the board game Ticket to Ride? I am not. I'm so sorry. I really like it. It's a game of strategy where you, uh, where there's a map of the United States and a few Canadian cities. Uh, connected by different colors and you have to strategize uh, based on the routes that uh, you are essentially given. You're given five cards, say New York to San Francisco, Toronto to Miami. Uh, you, you choose three of the five that you draw and you try to chart a route. The trick is you don't want to be blocked by somebody and each route is color coded. So you have to get uh, let's say Calgary to Seattle is six yellows. Uh, you have to get six yellow cards. So you have to, you know, kind of wait for wait, those to surface. Wait, I played this. Did you? I played it. Yes. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Go it's, ahead. It, it, it's just, we, we got it in December. I, I don't know if it was a Christmas present or... It was on sale at Target, and, and but it wasn't until maybe this week that we've we've been playing it. Uh, really, it's just Jordan, Meg, and me. Uh, Isaac's. Uh, I mean, it's it's a long game with a lot of strategy, so mm -hmm. we haven't yes, invited it is. him to necessarily play with us. So, uh, it, it's been fun to watch Jordan uh, develop her strategy. We're still in the polite mode. We're not we're not necessarily blocking each other's routes. Uh, we're just interesting building building our own. We haven't played it enough to get into the tit for tat kind of blocking of each other, but uh, it's it's been fun to do that the last few nights. Uh, one night we were able to to finish a game. Last night we left it out and uh, hope to resume tonight. And and one just fun thing to add into this is. <laughs> 
I mean, kids, they're, it's just, their minds are amazing. And the things they say, Jordan was quoting a Lord Tennyson poem as we were, <laughs> as we were, I don't know why that was in her mind. Tis not uh, ours to reason why. Uh, it, I, I Googled it. Cause the only, the only line I could remember was ringed with the azure world. He stands, I sorry, azure world. He oh. stands. It's the Eagle. Okay. Yeah. Where did she encounter that? That's kind of cool. cool. They memorize poetry in school, which is amazing. That is delightfully old school. I love <laughs> yeah, that. It's so old school. She doesn't go to a classical school, but but um, they're they're always at work memorizing a poem. When they're done memorizing one poem, they memorize a new one. It's cool. That is super cool. And uh, it's something about where was she? Uh, was she on a coastal city or? I don't know why that was. Maybe it was because we were looking at the colors. Um, and you know this word, this because uh, there's another game that she picked out. Probably the same trip that we got ticket to ride. Kirk, you'd hate this game. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the name. <laughs> it's it's something hues and cues. I think is what it's called. And it's there's this game board with I don't know. Uh, let's just say 300 different colors on it. Oh my god! The spectrum of colors, and you draw a card. We should clarify uh, why this is hilarious. I'm very colorblind. All right, go ahead, continue. You draw a card and there's four different colors on the card and you pick one and you de- use you describe that color in one word to everyone else and they look at the game board and they put their game piece on the oh. one that, that sounds the most accurate. Oh and then you could do a second round where you give a two word clue oh. and then based on proximity to that thing. Uh, so anyway, I... I <laughs> It's I'm I'm I've got some color blindness. I I've haven't had an official diagnosis, but I I could do a little bit better than you. But still, it was not my favorite game either. Yeah, we've had uh, we've had fits fits and starts in our family where we have tried to become board game people. And the problem is, I feel like honestly, we've we've tried it with the wrong games. Mm. So so. Um, it takes a certain kind of uh, murderous sadism to <laughs> embrace Monopoly as your family board game because everyone ends up hating everyone. And for like three days, and it's a miracle if you finish without someone kicking over the board or like crumpling up a bunch of money and throwing it at them as they like ask you for your last, like as you, as you're double mortgaged on your last piece of property and they ask you for your last bit of money, right? It has to end in tears and shouting. I think that's, that's that's how it's designed. Or Kirk, Kirk. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you. I know you're moving on, but I gotta tell the story. Go of when you and I and some Haberman cousins were at the cabin, and for some reason chose to play Monopoly. We would have been teenagers at the time. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we were fuming and just <laughs> furious by the end of the game, outraged at the the pure chance nature of the game that it doesn't involve any skill so for the rest of the trip for days on end we spent time trying to invent a new game that that involved skill but also had some chance i don't know if there's a stock market involved where where prices would fluctuate i don't know if we ever finished the thing but uh, i remember we dedicated a serious chunk of time to solving the problem of chance with with monopoly Right. And the problem of anger. But anyway, yeah. you were saying the other well, thing. Well, yeah, that would so there's, there's the problem of chance, but that's all board games, right? Like, right, right. You roll the dice and that's that. And you could have landed on Park Place, but instead you landed on jail. And so, you know what? Or whatever. Or especially once people start building up properties. I mean, everything is like 
Russian roulette, every roll of, <laughs> of the dices. Um, but the worst, the, I mean, what really brings out the long knives is it turns like your family members into like uh, your, uh, the, the guy who evicts you, right? <laughs> like you end up like mortgaging uh, your, your properties as you begin to go underwater. And um, I mean, they're your, they're your evil landlord that's kicking you out. Um, but the other one that we tried and tried and tried to get going, but you end up hating each other is, um, is risk. Because in the end, unless you win, your uh, the people you love you most will destroy your armies and toss you into the sea, right? So, but recently, you, there Ukraine been, Ukra Ukraine is weak. That's that's right. That's right. We're uh, we're all um, uh, not yeah. We're all Donetsk with uh, Putin marching in. Um, but no, recently, that a, Kirk, that was a that was a Seinfeld reference. Do, do you not? Oh, recall? okay. I missed. I missed it. I, okay. I was thinking, me as is like the last neo. No, no, no. I was no, thinking no. bitterly about us allowing Kramer, Kramer, Kramer in the last decade to go. Kramer and Newman are playing this long game of Risk, and uh, they bring it on the train, and like they <laughs> like one of them has the other one down to Ukraine, and like that's their stronghold, and the other's like, well, Ukraine is weak. And there's a Ukrainian on the train who hears that and like bashes, he knocks the board over. That's hilarious. Yeah. No, I'm still, I'm still upset about Russian occupation of Crimea and how we're just okay with it, but that's not what this podcast is about. All right. So <laughs> um, what was I saying? I was saying that we actually finally have come into some fun board games that don't involve everyone hating everybody. Um, have you played Exploding Kittens? I guess that's <laughs> not a board game. It's a card game. That's fun. That's hilarious. I okay. I am gonna need you to. Yeah, I've played it a few times, and it seemed frustrating and confusing. Uh, it takes repetition. It. it takes repetition. Okay. Uh, but recently, of course, we become a clue family. Uh, Santa Claus, <clears throat> yours truly, uh, um, gifted clue to the family, and uh, this Christmas, and it's become it's become a favorite. Uh, but what's funny? Stop me if I already shared this with you. Is uh, it's because Daphne can't read, either Kim or me. Have I shared this with you? Becomes no. the uh, the the Daphne handholder. Yeah. <laughs> who like holds holds her hand? At, Daddy, do I have this card? Right. Because every round, someone gets to if someone lands in a room, they get to call everyone to the room, and uh, and and guess that it was. Um, this person and this, I, it was Colonel Mustard in the study with the noose, right? In the noose and the study and everybody gets called in. And then Daphne like, daddy, is it me? And then if I'm the Daphne handler, then I'm looking at her cards or Kim's looking at her cards. But then sometimes she'll just, because she's four, accidentally say stuff or like <laughs> wave cards around. Yeah. So what's happening, what's happened is that my oldest two sons who evidently are, a closet slithering cutthroats yeah yeah like the, the way that they have won is they just like see people's cards it's not like they're clever <laughs> this is how they win so bryden's won twice and simon won once and then they with a with a um, with a knowing leer on their face announced that they knew that um they had seen my 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 card of a certain room and da all of Daphne's cards and George's card of a certain weapon. And so I'm like, whatever, go take a hike. Right, so. <laughs> For some reason, uh, I'm reminded, uh, basically 
look, he, it's from hearing you talk about your kids playing a game. I'm reminded of the summer when your your boys and Jordan played Mastermind 44, yes. one of my favorite games together. Oh, I love Mastermind. Yeah, it's great. Well, it, I mean, Mastermind's something different. This is Mastermind is is a two person game. Well, and Mastermind, Mastermind is it's 44. harder it's harder to give away what your what your color and your number is because once you have it, you just shove it underneath, and yes. it's I mean harder but not certainly not impossible yeah but if you're you know if you got six people playing around a table or you know sitting on the floor in the living room it's much easier to see people's cards yeah but with january it's a great time for board games just i recommend choosing one that doesn't involve like a circular firing squad (laughs) just (laughs) just be careful you choose one that that, doesn't uh, involve humiliation of everyone but the winner that's right yes Yes. Speaking of humiliation, um, the disciples of our dear Lord and Savior involved uh, humiliation in their deaths. But before they needed to be humiliated, they were first called. Let's look at the calling of uh, some of the disciples, shall we, Christopher? Let's. This week's gospel comes from the book of the gospel of Mark, chapter one, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kirk, do you ever wonder as I f- zoom way out and and describe the intricacies of 13th century, uh, you know, politics in in southern Germany, in Bavaria? Uh, do you ever <laughs> wonder if I'm going to land the plane? Do you ever worry about that? Uh, occasionally, I get fascinated as to uh, <laughs> w- through which side door you will re-enter the room. Because it's, yes. it's I, like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be like clever or secretive. It's just sometimes I like to zoom out. I'm going to do that again today. All right. So uh, uh, there's an interesting division in Protestantism that, that is, as is often the case, has two extremes and many fall somewhere in between with us, Kirk, you and I, of course, falling somewhere in the middle. On the one extreme, you have Arminianism which I probably don't understand well enough to give a good defense of, so I won't say a ton about it. But I do think, in general, it's a, a good intellectual exercise to do is to make an argument from a position opposite your own. The easiest thing to do is to smash straw men, right? So what better way to understand your own position than to understand your rejection of another? So the reason I say I don't 
understand Arminianism is because I don't see biblical warrant for it. Right. Um, perhaps it's because it, it's it's a response to more extreme versions of Calvinism. I'm not sure. Um, but what we're talking about when we talk about these two kind of polarities, Arminianism and Calvinism, is is we're talking about who is active in salvation. So the Calvinists uphold five points, commonly known as TULIP. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of saints. Kirk, I don't know how long these Dutch Calvinists worked to make sure that they could get their five statements to spell TULIP. Word has right. it that the only reason they have five points is because they couldn't find a, a way to, to spell clog. Well, no, I, I also heard was, that some advocated... I thought the acronym in Dutch is TROOP. <laughs> So some advocated windmill, but eight, eight points just seemed like too many, Kirk. Okay. Anyway, it's the doctrine of irresistible grace. That's a big. I like issue. that you and I both tried to make like a Dutch sound stupid joke out of that. But mm. all right, go ahead. So what we're talking about here, um, in terms of uh, is the is the I in tulip. Irres the doctrine of irresistible grace that Calvinists hold, and that's that's the big issue for Arminians. So the Calvinists teach, and I'm going to quote from Wikipedia here. They teach that the saving grace of God is effectually applied to those whom he has determined to save, the elect, and in God's timing overcomes their resistance to obeying the call of the gospel, bringing them to faith in Christ. Meaning that God's call to discipleship goes out to people that are totally ambivalent about him, and it is God who moves their hearts to respond. I'm going to quote Wikipedia again. It is to be distinguished from prevenient grace, particularly associated with Arminianism, which teaches that the offer of salvation through grace does not act irresistibly in a purely cause-effect deterministic method, but rather in an influence and response fashion that can be both freely accepted and freely denied. So I want to reiterate that most Protestants probably find themselves somewhere between these two positions Although most self-described Arminians, I want to point out, are far more extreme than what I just read in this Wikipedia entry. Um, in practice, it breaks down this way. Arminians want to emphasize the human response to God's call. Well, Calvinists want to emphasize that it is God who does all the saving. Arminians seem to fear that Calvinists don't emphasize enough the responsibility that we have to actively follow Jesus. And I, I believe Calvinists fear the sinful idolatry of saying that we are the authors of our salvation because, because all praise belongs to God and God alone. God is the one who saves. So I'll get to the connection to the passage in a moment. But first, I want to talk about how our bishop explains this. He says, God does everything. We do something. So, of course, it's God that does all the saving. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. But he also is asking for a response from you. And, th and that's where uh, some people would vehemently disagree. So I guess to add some further nuance, confessional Lutherans struggle with this idea that God is looking for you to respond to the call. Um, some would really oppose the idea of cajoling believers to follow. Um, they would say that that is, is to, giving, to give them the law, which can only have the effect of distancing us from the gospel. Well, this is this is the uh, the third use of the law that is much debated. 
um, among theologians in, in Protestantism. That is the law to shape and form uh, the guide character. Yep. Yeah. But all Christians should acknowledge that we are sons and heirs because of God's gracious initiative in calling us. And that's what we see in today's gospel. Last week, we saw John's account of the, of the calling of some of Jesus' disciples. This week, we have Mark's account of Jesus calling his disciples. So whether you're an Arminian or Calvinist, you look at this passage and you see God calling people who are not even looking for him. So this is similar to Abraham. <laughs> you know, Abraham's sitting in Ur, like far from this promised land uh, that, that he was promised. He's just minding his own business when God comes to him and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Abraham's not looking for God. And I guess right. if, if we're actually going to do it sequentially, God doesn't say, I will be your God and you will be my people. The first thing that God says to him is, go from your country and, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So this is kind of, this is kind of similar to Jesus' call, right? Where Jesus yeah. comes to them and says, like, leave your family and your job and, and everything and, and follow me. And with many Bible stories, I think it's easy to become too familiar with the story, and we forget how crazy the story actually is. In this passage, we see Jesus call to Simon and Andrew, who are fishing. They're fishermen, and Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And we see, Kirk, this Markin word. Yes. Immediately. immediately. Yep. yep. <laughs> and immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And then we get an abbreviated account of the calling of James and John's uh, James and John, who not only left their nets to follow Jesus, but they also left their father. Yeah. And this is just, again, like this story is too domesticated, like the story of the three of the wise men and all these other ones. Like, this is just unheard of. <laughs> this isn't like Nathaniel, who got this miraculous sign that Jesus had supernatural knowledge of what he was doing under the fig tree. Right. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Jesus didn't say anything else to Andrew and Peter besides what we have in Mark's account. This is a summation of what he said. Come with me and I will teach you to fish for men, right? But leaving your family and your trade was unthinkable in that culture. Who knows how many generations of this family of, this, of Zebedee, uh, how, how they had passed down these fishing spots, these fishing nets, these fishing boats. Who knows? This was something that was passed down. It wasn't just a livelihood. It was an identity. And family stuck together. And yet each of these men, they left their nets and everything they had to follow Jesus. They left their jobs, their families, their homes. We, we don't have an account of them asking if Jesus offers vision or dental. <laughs> they, don't, they don't ask if there's a 401k or a housing allowance. Had they asked, they would have been disappointed because they were forsaking all earthly comforts. Also, don't think that it's incidental that they were fishermen. Common folk, simple folk, and yet God chose these men to be his apostles. But scholars these days think they're pretty smart. They analyze texts of the Bible in ways that allows them to be confident and confidently contradict what tradition tells us. So the naming of the books in the Bible comes to us from tradition. Some of these aren't even written down anywhere in the book. And, and yet uh, we, we have them named going back many, many, many years. And scholars will scrutinize these texts and come to different 
conclusions. For instance, many scholars doubt that Peter was actually the author of First and Second Peter. And one of the main reasons they say this is because those letters were written by an educated man. And we know that Peter was just a simple fisherman. How could he write such sophisticated letters? So I parenthetically will say that both Kirk and I, if I may speak for you, Kirk, um, adopt the traditional authorship of, of the entire New Testament, if not the Absolutely. whole Bible. Um, and so I just raise this point to show how God chose these common tradesmen and later common women to first be his disciples, but then to be his apostles. And so the, the term apostle is a somewhat technical term um, referring to someone who's sent out with the gospel message. So, I mean, the disciples were apostles, but they, they're distinct terms. I just want to say that. So, um, but so this kind of goes along with this idea that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. We've yes. talked again and again about the upside down kingdom of God that Jesus glory is found in his humiliating death. So he didn't choose, Jesus didn't choose skilled orators or rich people or educated people or royalty to carry his message. He chose simple fishermen, or in Matthew's case, a tax collector, you know, sinners. And this is the power of God. He transforms. He provides. <laughs> he provided with each of these people everything that they needed to be apostles. So he can use you and me no matter what your shortcomings are. In fact, time and time again in, in scripture, we see God demonstrating this. Take the example of Gideon. 32,000 people responded to his call to fight the Midianites. And God whittled that down to 10,000 and then down to the 300. And in doing so, God demonstrated that it isn't our might that is effective in this world, but his. And so th this is where I apply it to today, Kirk. It's incredibly important for us as we just witnessed the inauguration of a new president and the, and the change in power from Republican to Democrat. This change in power has some Republican Christians mourning because we are tempted to see power in human terms, mm -hmm. uh, you know, assuming that the Republicans are the Christian party. How worse, worse than mourning, <laughs> fearful. Fear, fear. Yeah. How in the world can God's will be done with a Democrat in the White House? Well, the same way that God's will was done in making a great nation, starting with just Abram. The same way that he defeated the, the Midianites with Gideon and 300 men. The same way that the church flourished under persecution in the Roman Empire and, pers and throughout persecuted lands throughout history and to this day. Is the persecuted church today thriving, Kirk? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in political parties. Put not your trust in politicians. Vote your conscience and trust the Lord. Kirk, do you think God is strong enough to withstand a Biden presidency? <laughs> or is this the end of the world? You're, you're asking the wrong person. I am not by nature a catastrophist. So I'm a, I'm a, I always have rose-colored glasses, so it'll be fine. I know you're asking an important rhetorical question. Um, it is Biden's election or Trump's election had no effect on the trajectory of God's kingdom. No. I'll even say that. <laughs> yeah. So Kirk, tell me your thoughts on this, this text from Mark. Well, Christopher, I, you, you promised that you would enter <laughs> through a side door in an unexpected way and you did. So I appreciate that. That was, 
you kept you kept me on the edge of my seat, and uh, I, I imagine the the listener as well. I I don't want to stray too far afield, but I just want to. You got me thinking as you were talking about how we how we can marvel we who who believe that the Holy Spirit did work through the early church in forming the canon of Scripture, and that the Bible is divinely inspired, and that the Holy Spirit did guide the selection of the texts um, that that do form the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, and uh, I, I think of, um, you know, I, uh, Christopher, you and, you and I, uh, we had good and well-meaning teachers uh, in, in high school, and yet we went to a very small high school in northern Minnesota. And so I think we both had the sense, uh, the sense of awesome wonder um, in, our, in, in some of our college courses and being exposed to um, Western literature that, that, that we had only kind of heard hints and whispers of, right? Let's and just so, say that, let's just say we did not memorize Tennyson in elementary No, school. we didn't. So in college, I, uh, I, I drank as a, as a man, as a thirsty man who had been watering in the desert, I drank up um, uh, ancient texts by Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Herodotus, Pliny, um, never read Virgil, we'll get to that at some point. Uh, and, um, Christopher, we've read some great ancient authors, um, and we get a sense for um, their personality. Uh, we we get you get the sense for Socrates' personality, and how he's a great mind, and Aristotle's personality, and how he's a great mind. Uh, but it's <laughs> the Gospels. It, our Lord, as you said so well, works in quite a different way, in which um, he is the Potter, and the uh, mm. and the the evangelists were the clay. Um, so Luke was an educated man, um, but other than that, uh, Peter is formed dramatically um, by our Lord and by the Holy Spirit through the course of his life. Um, and, and perhaps uh, what the, the author, perhaps what you read in Peter's Greek in First and Second Peter, I'm not qualified to say, um, has a sophistication beyond that of a Galilean fisherman. But the wisdom that is formed there is wisdom that is not of mm. him, but is given of God. And mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. we read it differently, Christopher, than, than would a scholar with a, with a cold, uh, critical eye who's trying to see the education, the first century education behind the man. And uh, what we see is the wisdom that is bestowed by the Holy Spirit, not um, not any, not anything that of which Peter could boast. Um, so, um, and as you said, that's the beauty of the calling of these disciples is God calls, God chooses, God shapes, God forms. And because of that, only God can then get the glory with what mm. follows. And, and so it is in our life. Um, God calls us and all, God claims us in our baptism and he shapes us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that we were who were once sinners, uh, any, anything lovely and beautiful that subsequently comes um, out of our lives is, is to his glory alone. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, I have been, I've had great cause, Christopher, to be thinking about the calling of the disciples, both in, because of the calling of Philip and Nathaniel last week, and then this week we see Peter and Andrew and James and John, um, but also in, in our own parish, in our adult Sunday school series, we, uh, we talked last week about the confession of, of Peter. And this coming week, we'll be talking about the conversion of Paul. And um, it's, uh, 
it's 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 awesome um, when uh, you encounter these men and what they were called into, and ultimately um, how they end their lives, all except uh, John, <laughs> um, and end their lives as martyrs. They're 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 killed for the sake of Christ, and we believe, so far as we can tell, I, I believe strongly that they did it gladly, willingly, and mm. the accounts that we receive through through the tradition of the church are that um, with great gladness and Peter demanded to be crucified upside down um, because uh, it would be too great an honor to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and savior. Uh, and so uh, sometimes Christopher, you and I grew up with the song, I will make you fishers of men. I'm quoting this passage. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, right? Um, if you follow me. Yeah, yeah. Nope. Um, I think we should be careful uh, confusing our calling with the calling of the apostles. Uh, and, and I think a lot of Christians grew up in evangelicalism with this yoke laid upon them. Um, the, the idea behind that song is that we are called to be fishers of men too. And I'm not saying that we're not called to uh, give a winsome account uh, we read in First Peter that um, that let us all be ready to give an account, a, a winsome, happy, uh, brief account of of our Lord. Um, uh, but but nonetheless, the, the the calling that is given here is to the apostles, and so let's not confuse the two. Uh, I I think it's okay to just marvel <laughs> at the ministry of the apostles. Uh, so, I mean, uh, last, this past Monday was the Confession of St. Peter, and uh, we covered it in an adult Sunday school. And um, because of that, this week, I have sort of just marveled at his life and the evolution of Peter from uh, the account that we receive in the Gospels of this um, very kind of vain, not vain, uh, impulsive, boastful man um, to kind of, uh, and, and we see also his, his, uh, initial confession, which is brilliant, uh, of the Lord, as Jesus says, but very brief and concise. Um, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's true. But then you see the growth of that confession to what he preaches then in, in Acts. Uh, and you see the trajectory, uh, and this amazing evangelist who baptized and converted thousands. And, um, it's okay to just marvel at that and to give thanks to God for the, those that have come before that have built the church. Uh, and so I think um, I'm speaking as a lay person here. Uh, let's not confuse the apostolic calling with our lay calling. And I wish we had a better doctrine of vocation. Uh, Martin Luther um, spoke very eloquently. Uh, and this isn't eloquent. He, he said this provocatively, even the hangman glorifies God by doing his duty. Um, but he spoke more eloquently at times by the beauty of a mother changing a diaper um, because a mother is called to be a mother. And uh, we can all glorify God uh, by living fully into our particular vocation at that particular point in, in our life. And uh, I think right now the Christian church, which is foundering, I think, uh, I mean, we can, we can say just uh, empirically, um, we are losing numbers in the United States, um, but you also get a sense as well, especially with the coronavirus, um, that there's a, um, 
a, a loss of maybe a loss of hope, a loss of there's a loss of something. <laughs> maybe a lot could be said about this. And um, and uh, right now, perhaps we can all um, live into our particular calling. The Christian Church, uh, yes, we need fishers of men, but we also need um, uh, our 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 laity who are scientists and doctors and teachers and garbage men. <laughs> we, uh, we should be Christian teachers and Christian garbage men and Christian scientists and Christian doctors and Christian nurses and live out our calling there with, with grace and forgiveness and mercy, doing those sorts of things. And I guess maybe the baggage that I carry here, Christopher, is this fishers of men baggage that I mm. kind of carry, that it was my job to, um, to convert dozens in my life. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I, I don't know that that is my job, but mm. I am, guess what I am. I am a teacher and, uh, I've come to think of myself as a Christian teacher and to shine forth God's mercy in my vocation here. And guess what I am. I'm a musician and, uh, I can serve God in that way, in my little way, in my little corner. Um, and I try really hard to do that and to glorify God in the way that I can. Uh, Christopher, are you familiar with the uh, Christian demographer, uh, Lyman Stone? He's an interesting young man. He, uh, he uh, is a missionary in Hong Kong, which is a, right now a very interesting place to be a missionary. He's a confessional Lutheran, uh, member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, but he's also a demographer at the American Enterprise Institute. And he does a lot of interesting work helping to debunk and uh, um, kind of Christian misconceptions about church growth, when the church was strong, when it was weak, uh, when the, uh, the idea that, that, that the United States was a, was a quote, Christian nation. For example, um, uh, church attendance um, in, in 1776. So we, in, in the church, right, we, we think that uh, we were, quote, a Christian nation at our founding, right? Um, and actually, <laughs> America was, in some ways, uh, the Wild West at its founding, um, just because of how rural it was uh, and the type of people that had left England to come here were, uh, were, were drunks, outlaws, cranks, nuts, uh, <laughs> re religious zealots. I mean, we, we, say, we say things like um, Puritan and Quaker as if they, these are like interesting, like um, <laughs> gentle civic people. No, these were the nuts who couldn't stand living in a very conventionally Christian England at the time, right? Um, so in, in, in any case, um, this was not a Christian nation. Uh, church attendance was under 10%. Anyhow, so back to Lyman Stone. Lyman Stone has traced, and I was furiously Googling and I couldn't find it. And I need to record this somewhere. The number of adult believers it takes to create another adult convert. It's around 20. It, it might be more than that. Uh, so that means you have a one in 20 odds of ever creating another adult believer in your life. It's not great. It's not great. <laughs> so then, how can we do evangelism? Are we all called to be fishers of men? If so, your odds of being a successful fisher of men are like 5%. <laughs> so clearly, the Christian call to evangelism means something else. Um, now, he is a pronatal. <laughs> he thinks part of, he, hmm. part of the, faith, the work that he does is explaining the, the decline of American Christendom is just a story of us having fewer children. Uh, and so if you trace, but that, that's another story for another time. Uh, so I think um, as we read passages like this, and I've, I've gone on long here, Christopher, and I'm sorry. 
Um, I, I don't think maybe the, the point is to feel the law of being fishers of men, um, but to marvel and give thanks to God for these fishers of men that God did call and to follow to the, follow the trajectory to the bitter ends on crosses, um, <laughs> dying for, for their Lord. And I, I wanted to just end this segment, Christopher, unless you have any final thoughts. I, I want to end this segment reading a, a poem that both you and I love. Um, no, I, I, I do have further it. thoughts that I'd like yeah, to, go to get to. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so you want the last word in the segment is what you're saying. So you want me to go now and then you'll close Yeah, it? yeah, go ahead. Okay. So um, I guess I want to maybe clarify, maybe push back. Um, so it's interesting, push this away. demographer... <laughs> who uh is is giving these kind of cold calculated numbers uh which again like like the, these aren't things that you could put in the widget machine and crank it out and then like if you have 20 believers you can make a new one um like that's of <laughs> course not how the, that's not how the lord works um but also like it sounds like he is reacting against maybe uh a culture where people are essentially shamed into like why aren't you doing evangelism yeah maybe a little bit i think i think he's just a man who who loves numbers and is really good at it yeah yeah well and, and also and course, he's not ashamed he's he's he is himself a a, uh, a missionary so okay. it's not like he's yeah. given up and just decided to have eight children and do it and expand the kingdom that way instead or anything yeah so go ahead. well the numbers are what the numbers are um yeah but uh when i hear that that like when you talk about like needing 20 to produce one, like for me, that's a dis just as disempowering as um, feeling the call to evangelism and to make disciples. You know, we do have this thing called the great commission, which yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I would argue was only to the apostles. I think that's poor. Um, that's a poor way of reading scripture. I, th I think like that's, this is the way that God makes disciples is that is, is uh, we see last week where um Nathaniel came because of Andrew. I mean, like one disciple tells about others, um, where we see the first missionary being, uh, well, I mean, I guess we could say the wise men, but in, in the book of John, the first missionary we see is, is the woman at the well who goes back to town and tells them about Jesus, the sinner, um, where, where uh, evangelism isn't just for the professionals, isn't just for the people who have the qualifications, because the Lord can use you. And here's the thing, Kirk, none of us makes a disciple. Like when you and I uh, relationally and intellectually engage with other people, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, if that person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you and I did not make that disciple. That's right. Yeah. If, if we did, um, th then like it would be the most discouraging thing ever because like, I, like um, the thing is God calls us and, and I would say Martin Luther would, would say that our, each of our vocation is to bear witness to the light of Christ. That, um, G you know, while Jesus was the light of the world and John came to, he, John was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. Uh, we also see Jesus in Matthew 5 say, you are the light of the world. You know, put your light on a stand. Don't hide it. Let your light shine before others so that yeah. they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Um, we are called to evangelism, but we are called, we are given this immense freedom from pressure in evangelism, like our whole lives. Our whole lives are a testament to who we worship. 
Yeah. And um, that what, what, what takes away the pressure is knowing that it is the Holy Spirit that goes before us. And it's the Holy Spirit that, and this goes back to like the way we started today. It's a, the, it is God who saves. Like um, it is not our convincing arguments for the sake of Christ. That's right. Um, we just need to do our part. We need to fulfill our vocation and, and leave the rest to God. So this isn't that we yeah. sit on our hands. This isn't that we feel ashamed because we haven't made enough converts. It is acknowledging that God is going to do the work he does, but that he uses us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not making, I, I mean, Lord knows I'm not making an anti-evangelist argument. I, uh, I, I love talking. I love the sound of my own voice and I love talking about uh, my faith and everyone who knows me kind of, I have to try hard not to be preachy sometimes. So yeah, I'm, I'm not making that. I guess, Christopher, what I'm making more is a pro-church argument. Mm. Um, so mm. uh, let me say, for example, I think there are some people who in, in good faith, unconsciously, um, are, 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 um, are, are doing some unproductive things. They, they have Im imbibed this, I will make you fishers of men argument. They, they, re they share prayers on Facebook um they ask for prayers on facebook um and yet they haven't been to church in two years they don't tithe they're not mm. in any committees they're not doing any of the you want to talk about evangelism and um doing kind of the, the getting your fingernails dirty um go to church go to boring committee meetings uh, like become involved in organizations like give sure. money Sure. <laughs> show up to the soup kitchen night like help to do do the church cleanup day help with that stuff <laughs> and and, so. and kirk we who don't always have good words you know like what words do you use to share the good news of the gospel sometimes right. like we don't know what to say um but we look at the example from last week come and see right right come and see yeah. so like one of the best things we can do for somebody uh who we've established a relationship with and, and a bond of trust um, is to just uh, say, come and see. And what, yeah. what I mean by come and see is like, sometimes you can't describe it. Just yeah. like come, come to church and witness this. So, so I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of idle chatter that people think is evangelism. Sure. Um, who oh, have, well, who yeah. Are, yeah. Like, like winning arguments on, on Facebook. Right. Like, or yeah. yeah. Or who, who are, who have been so far away from the church who are so, sort of making se only semi-Christian arguments towards others anyway, sure. um, instead of saying, come and see and bringing people to the church where the shepherds can pastor them uh, sure. and bring them into the fold, preach them, teach them, baptize them, baptize their babies, confirm them, do the stuff that is the work of the church that creates and builds believers. Yeah. Well, Kirk, we've been talking for some time in, and I haven't even gotten to talk about the most dense verse uh, in, this, <laughs> in this passage, which is verse 15, where yeah. like we, we get um, Jesus' proclamation of the gospel of God, when, where he says, the kingdom of, or, I'm sorry, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the, the God, in the gospel. So I guess that'll be a conversation for another time. Go ahead and close, <laughs> go ahead and close out the segment. Yeah, so you and I uh, have both loved for a while this, uh, there's a lovely hymn, uh, it comes from a mm. poem. It's called They Cast Their Nets in Galilee. 
Uh, and maybe I'm too sheepish with the tune. I don't know, maybe you're too sheepish with the tune, but we were both noting that neither of us have ever had the guts to kind of pull the trigger and have it sung at our church. Um, but I did, I did close my Sunday school lesson with it last week, uh, last Sunday, reading it, and uh, there was sort of a hushed awe after. <laughs> um, and uh, one person requested, why don't we sing this? He said, could you play the tune right now? And I played the tune, and they're like, eh, eh, well, I think we could learn it. <laughs> and here, here's, here's the, the poem. They cast their nets in Galilee, just off the hills of Brown. Such happy, simple fisher folk before the Lord came down. Contented, peaceful fishermen before they ever knew the peace of God that filled their hearts, brimful and broke them too. Young John, who trimmed the flapping sail, homeless in Patmos died. Peter, who hauled the teeming net, head down was crucified. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. Yet brothers, pray for but one thing, the marvelous peace of God. That's just lovely. It's so lovely. And it causes me to give thanks uh, for those fisher folk and for our Lord calling them and what the Holy Spirit wrought in their lives. And we are heirs to that. Amen. Amen. Christopher, this Sunday is the Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's right. Uh, in 1984, January 22nd was deemed National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And ever since then, uh, that's been translated to, to a Sunday where, where we in the church, not necessarily the Anglican church, it's not on our calendar, but, but many Anglicans uh, recognize this. And in fact, both of our churches will. Um, and uh, the the reason for this date is is the the uh, the sad anniversary um, in 1973 of the of the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion. Now, unfortunately, in Christian culture, sanctity of life has too much been used to refer only to the unborn. Um, that uh, we defend the lives and, and we advocate pro-life legislation. We try to restrict access to abortion. I'm okay saying I want to restrict access to abortion. Um, and there have been uh, certainly some uh, legislative efforts that uh, at least have provided education to young mothers. But um, I think, Kirk, as you and I have grown, hopefully in wisdom, we've come to understand that the tragedy of abortion is not just... Um, that uh, a human made in the image of God is being killed. And that's not 
yours or my decision uh, to make because all life belongs to God. And it's not the mother's light. It's not the mother's choice either. Um, it's interesting, this idea of bodily autonomy, uh, this American idea of, of this um, that uh, is, is quite contrary to our reading from First Corinthians from last week, in which we were told, you are not your own. You were bought with, for a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We are told in very clear language by scripture that we are not our own. We are not autonomous, that we belong to this greater body of the church. And so what we do with our bodies, what we do in all things, that matters. That matters that God, of course, God forgives and absolves sin. Um, but what we do still matters. It affects the body. So things may be lawful, but they may not be helpful. And in the case of abortion, it's not lawful. So so um, again, this er erroneous notion that, that we somehow have autonomy over bodies. No, we belong to the Lord. We belong to this greater body of Christ, this this body of believers. Um, but but uh, I guess I'm getting <laughs> a sidetracker. This... Um, the tragedy isn't just a loss of, of, of the, the life of a baby. Uh, an equal tragedy is the fact that, that women uh, are out there who feel that they have no other choice but abortion. And, and I hope that um, uh, conservative Christians who are listening can, can hear that, um, that uh, these, these women who are making these decisions aren't evil. Um, perhaps some are. There, there's... Um, there's something about um, in scripture, something evil about calling a bad thing good. And there are, are, are women who have live streamed or, or talked about the beauty of their own abortion. It's not beautiful. It's not beautiful. And, and so there are women who have kind of reacted the other way. But, but many um, carry um, tremendous guilt and shame um, from, from this decision that they felt um, that they had no other choice but to make. And... Um, so, so if, if you are uh, someone who uh, wants to, to be an advocate for, for, um, for babies, I hope that you're an advocate for, for uh, pregnant single mothers as well. And also, Kirk, it's interesting that, that uh, it is – so I'm going to ruffle some feathers here. It is pro-life people that would be the, probably the least um, inclined um, to stand up for – um, the unlawful killing of someone like uh, George Floyd or, or um, the things that, that, that have aroused uh, passion from Black Lives Matter. Um, because um, all Christians, you know, uh, George Floyd, does, imperfect individual as he may have been. Uh, did he have a record, Kirk? I believe he had a record. Uh, but it's interesting that, that somehow that is held against him. Right. He deserved his day in court. You know, we, we are, you know, we do not believe that, that police um, have the authority to uh, over life or death. And so um, I just very quickly wanted to point to um, th the, the idea that, that all people, all people are made in the image of God. And, and in this um, fractious uh, time of politics, Kirk, um, where we demonize our opponents and, uh, you know, I, I just posted something on Facebook um, something disgusting that someone by the name of Jesse Kelly, um, kind of this, this right-wing talk yeah. show uh, radio host yep. um, who, who openly advocated balkanization. He said, uh, they hate us conservatives uh, or Christians. I'm not sure, mm -hmm. but like they, they hate us. He said, um, 
Um, so shop at your own store, support your own businesses, like um, sowing seeds of division uh, against people who are made in the image of God. Like God loves those people who are different from you. And, and it's, it's just a, a fleeing from the sanctity of, of life saying that, that the other is somehow um, bad. So I, I wanted to just very quickly and then hand over to you. It's not going to be very quick, but um, I want to point out that, that we, as, as in the ACNA, we do have a catechism, uh, and, it's, and so as opposed to Reformed and sometimes Lutheran catechisms, uh, Reformed catechisms can be comprehensive and long, um, and, and really uh, where, uh, you know, a creed would be like uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. It's like, are you a Christian or are you not? Can you agree to these things? If you are, if you can, you're a Christian. Where usually confessions, I'm sorry, catechisms and, and even confessions are much narrower things, defining, you know, like uh, just more narrowly. Like you and I, we couldn't agree to um, 100% to Reformed confessions. Um, but the ACNA confession isn't a, a super narrow document. It just right. kind of gives answers to basic questions. So, um, Question 114, what does Holy Scripture tell you about your body? Here's the answer. Holy Scripture tells me that my body, though tainted by sin, was created good, bearing the image of God and endowed with great dignity. Therefore, from the moment of conception to natural death, every human body and every human life should be cared for, protected, and loved. And then question 314, how should Christians understand the value of life? All life belongs to God. Human life is especially sacred because we are created in God's image. Because Jesus came to give us new and abundant life in him. Christians, therefore, should act with reverence toward all living things and with special regard for the sanctity of human life. So these, Kirk, are just very um, kind of basic starting off points, these answers from uh, the catechism that, that tell very, you know, these aren't voting. This isn't telling you how to vote. You know, these aren't narrow things. It's just like, what does the Bible teach about your body and the value of life? So with that, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah. So, I mean, half of our listeners at this point will, <laughs> um, will uh, be, be angry with us. Be, be uncomfortable because, uh, the the anti the the pro life cause has become associated with one particular party, and uh, this is just the result of polarization in American politics, which is another discussion for another time. Um, but it's but but it's it's created unhealthy tensions, I think, in Christian discussions and in our in our uh, confession and in the work that we have to do, the ministry that we have to do to our neighbor and our nation. Um, which is half of Christians, um, Christians who are Democrats in the United States, um, just kind of like go into hiding on, on this day. The, um, the March for Life is perceived as a Republican march, and uh, that's really, really too bad. Um, likewise, it is, it is, and, and, and this is this is partly why I don't want to balkanize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I likewise. mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if Democrats became more friendly to pro-life? Yeah, or yeah. you know, so we shouldn't just write them off and 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 just like demonize them and sit, totally separate. Yeah, yeah, and and likewise, um, uh, Republicans, uh, Christian conservatives who go to lovely gospel-centered mega churches in the suburbs, um, who haven't seen a seen a soup kitchen or fed a homeless person, um, maybe ever. You know, uh, the kind of the the social gospel 
um, the, the the call to to feed the poor and to care for the poor. Um, that that too, is um, uh, recognizing the dignity and the image of God in all humans. Um, you know, even even those who are um, you know uh, have pet causes maybe of of progressive Christians. Or even more, and I'm, not, I'm going to be just kind of agnostic on this because I don't even want to ruffle further feathers. Um, uh, those uh, prisoners, uh, how often does the New Testament speak of, um, of prisoners as um, uh, oppressed creatures and worthy of dignity? Um, and, uh, and yet, I think Christian conservatives, it's, that's not even on Christian conservatives' radar um, uh, or issues about the death penalty. Um, and so... I, I think we need to leave our political commitments, carry them very lightly as Christians. And when we start to talk about the image of God and the sanctity of life, if you feel your political commitments tugging at them, mm. drop them, drop them, leave them behind, leave them behind, because they are very temporary. And your party membership or any pack that you've donated to or candidate that you've donated to, um, in a thousand years, you will be worshiping the Lord God, um, mm. but you will have no relationship to <laughs> any political cause. Um, so I would just, I would say that, uh, what is the theological basis for the sanctity of human life? It is uh, what, what theologically we call the Imago Dei, and that sounds fancy because we say it in Latin, <laughs> but it just means the image of God. And that doesn't mean that God has 10 fingers and 10 toes. Uh, two arms, two legs, a nose, two eyes, or whatever. Um, it has to do with more of our essence, um, maybe maybe the intelligence of God or the form of God, um, to use kind of a Greek concept. Um, we talked about that a little bit um, during Christmas tide when we talked about the logos. Um, that is the organizing principle. We we somehow express uh, in a way that will only make sense on the other side of the grave. Um, in our lives, we somehow carry with us some thumbprint of God. Uh, and that is that is a divine image. And so that has consequences. That means the human life carries with it a dignity uh, from the moment that that human life exists. And that human life obviously exists um, since the form of that human life is its, um, is its genome. Once that genome exists, that is the form of that human. It is, it just is, right? Um, uh, from, from the moment that genome exists until um, those cells no longer have, until those cells are room temperature, um, that, that, that human life is a life, right? And um, uh, Christians, if, you, if that makes you squirm, uh, I, I gently implore you to deal with it. <laughs> um, either, either on the birth end or on the death end. <laughs> if that's a criminal that's being sent to the chair or lethal injection, uh, grapple with that. Um, Christians who march in, a, in the... In the the right to life march, and yet um, don't think a moment about the death penalty. Maybe think about it. Um, I think that is probably uh, the, the decreased use, Christopher, in our lifetime of the death penalty is probably a good thing. Our society is wealthy enough that it has the means to humanely deal with violent criminals um, other than killing them, <laughs> right? Because they too bear the image of God, however shattered and fractured that is. And all life belongs to God. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the theology that's lurking behind there. And also, this is hard for us for two reasons, I think, Christopher, as moderns. Number one, um, I think we believe that death is the default setting, and that is a modern atheistic notion, um, that we didn't exist, and then we winked into existence, and then we'll die again, which will be going back to our default setting, which was unconsciousness. 
Um, and that is not, <laughs> that is not a Christian conception. Rather, death is the absence of life, right? G darkness is the absence of light. Uh, and we get this uh, brilliant image from St. Augustine, um, uh, like uh, God is like the sun. Uh, God is the sun that emits heat. And the further we get from the sun, the colder we get. Um, and so, uh, so light is the default setting. God is the default setting. Life is the default setting. And so um, anything that brings death to life, um, should we, we, uh, we should, um, we should fight against, not fight against, but um, we should, we should strive to uphold life from beginning to end. I don't know if American Christians are how are aware how the, the type of legislation that exists, well, with the, the legal situation in Europe, um, in terms of uh, both euthanasia, but also um, prenatal counseling that is, for example, almost rid uh, countries like the Netherlands of all, I think, I think we're down to several hundred people who have Down syndrome in the Netherlands, um, which is, Christopher, you mentioned it when we, in our conversation, that's eugenics. It is, yeah. it just is. Yeah. It's calling the herd of the weak. And that's not how we Christians should, should think. Um, but lastly, I would say this, Christopher, life, um, Christians, we should never think of life as a means, but rather an end. Um, and we are engaging in kind of, um, uh, the, we are engaging in both the means and the philosophy of the deceiver when we use people. People are an end in themselves. God created all. <laughs> uh, and we do not, yeah, people are not an inconvenience to us. Mm. Uh, and whether that is an unborn child, that unborn child is not an inconvenience to us, or whether that is a criminal in a prison, that is not an inconvenience to us as a taxpayer or whatever. But also let's extend that logic as well to our neighbor, to our rude neighbor, our neighbor that we feel like uh, injures us or hurts us, or is just a pain in the rear end. Um, they are not an inconvenience, but they're all created by God. Uh, and we are called to turn the other cheek, right? And to give sacrificially and painfully to all, um, not according to their worth. We don't judge people by their worth and give to those who, uh, um, who have great worth, but we give to all. So. Right, because there's universal dignity in all yes. humans, like by <laughs> just by dint of being human. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So those are my thoughts, Christopher, and I'm glad I'm glad you brought this up. This wasn't necessarily on my radar, and after you and I talked about um, discussing this, I got our uh, I got a PDF in the in my email, our bulletin for the Sunday, and um, and our priest has made a point. Uh, this is on the cover of our bulletin, Sanctity of Life Sunday, which our parents parish hasn't in the past uh, necessarily recognized. So this is this is good. This is good. Any final thoughts, sir? Let's pray. Let's pray. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, 
defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. See you next week, Kirk. Next week.